News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about Canada's vaccine rollout. Is it going well? Well, it depends on who you ask, actually. Of course, the federal government would tell you that, yes, they're doing everything they can. Provincial leaders, industry experts, just regular observers like you and me, well, we're probably a bit more divided on that question, right? So let's talk about it. Joining us is Paul Lucas. He retired as president and CEO of the pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline back in 2012. But he spent 16 years at the helm of that company, which produced the H1N1 vaccine right here in Canada. And he joined is now to talk about a piece that he's written in the Financial Post. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us. So tell me, you, you wrote this great piece in the Financial Post about where Canada has gone wrong when it came to getting our hands on the vaccine. Where did we go wrong? Well, I think I just asked some questions in that piece. And um, I guess like most Canadians, I'm, I guess I'm frustrated and disappointed with where we are as a country uh, with respect to early doses of vaccine. You know, we're way behind the U.S. and the U.K. and, of course, Israel. And we now rank, like, 12th in the world in terms of our vaccination rate. And uh, clearly, you know, that's that's no longer a provincial issue from my point of view. It's a federal issue. And, you know, so I, I just started asking the questions is, why did we not acquire sufficient vaccine quantities to this point in time? And we won't have them until April at the earliest. So we'll have only 6 million doses by the end of March. Uh, So that'll vaccinate 3 million people. By that time, other countries will have vaccinated significantly larger portions of their population. So as a former CEO of a pharmaceutical company then, Paul, what would you have looked for from the Canadian government? What could they have done in this situation? Well, I think they could have had a better relationship with the pharmaceutical industry over the years, and they would have been uh, more closely in contact with the industry and be aware of you know, what technologies were developing uh, with respect to uh, new vaccines and so on. But the government has had a pandemic plan for, for years now, and unfortunately, they didn't implement it. Um, in in pretty well every respect of the pandemic, they didn't do what was in the plan. Uh, and one of those elements was preparing uh, to make sure that we had uh, vaccines for the next pandemic, because we knew this was coming. Mm-hmm. We've known it for years. It was just a matter of when. So, um, you know, I think I think my recommendation would have been that they'd have that relationship with the industry. They would have realized immediately that the only companies that would have a chance of producing a vaccine to this scale would be the global pharmaceutical companies. Uh, Instead, they kind of spent time trying to develop a a Chinese vaccine, uh, which, you know, amazes me that they would have tried to do that. Uh, and they put money into a couple of other initiatives in Canada, and and they didn't have any chance of producing a, a vaccine for this pandemic. They may pay off down the road in the next pandemic or in the next couple of years. Right. But um, I think I think that's the key. They w- they would have implemented their pandemic plan, and they didn't do that. But why not? Well, that's my question: is why didn't they? Um, you know, we we should have been doing a lot better than we've been doing. We went through SARS. We went through H1N1. Uh, as I mentioned in my paper, GlaxoSmithKline produced the vaccine in Canada for that vaccine. 
and we rolled it out, and it was a very successful campaign. But for some, and we talked about at that time, we all talked about the fact, well, we need to learn from that. We need to apply the learnings in the next pandemic. And one of the things we really need is we need to make sure we've got multiple sources of vaccines for the next pandemic. And, you know, we have 11,000 people in, in Health Canada. And it, it amazes me and should amaze Canadians that nobody put up their hand and said, we've got to be ready for the next pandemic. And one of the things we have to do is make sure we're up to speed on what's happening in the vaccine world. And we need to secure those vaccines early. Is there any country that you look at and they could point to to say, see, look what they did? Well, I think Israel is kind of the the model right now. Um, And, you know, I make the point, why aren't we like Israel? You know, they're going to, they're going to vaccinate, they vaccinated, I think, 25% of their population already. You know, and people will say, well, it's a small country, it's easy. Well, that's not, that's not the case. They were able to acquire, very astutely, significant quantities of vaccine. They got early approval, and they started mass rollout of that vaccine, and they've done extremely well. And I just have to ask the question, why, why didn't we aspire to do that uh, a few years ago when we knew this pandemic was coming? So we always like to thank Paul, as you pointed out, that we learn, right, from our mistakes and moving forward. We say, oh, we're not going to let that happen again. But do you see evidence of that happening on the Canadian side of things? (laughs) Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, I have to chuckle last night. I was watching the news and, you know, one of the fellows on there says, well, we're going to learn from this experience and we'll apply those learnings next time around. Well, after SARS, which I was involved with, everybody said that. And after H1N1, everybody said that. And we didn't apply the learnings, <laughs> you know, so right. we don't tend to learn. And I, you know, I, to some degree, I put that on the bureaucrats in Ottawa. You know, they're the ones that, you know, are, are there for over the longer term. The politicians move and change and so on. Um, but the political leaders didn't, didn't realize that this was coming. And they should have, and they should have planned for it. But will they continue to do so? I mean, we're going to have lots of vaccines, but it just seems like it's going to be towards the end of the year. And, you know, a couple of years from now, if this did happen again, will we have the ability to be better at this, producing our own vaccines? Like, has that relationship improved, do you think, with the pharmaceutical industry? Well, I think they're trying, and I'm hoping that the federal government will realize that, um, you know, their way out of this was working with companies like Pfizer and Moderna. You know, they, they're, they're saving uh, the world, basically, right now uh, by producing these vaccines early. And, um, you know, hopefully uh, that will lead to a closer relationship between the industry and the federal government and that we uh, invest locally here to try and develop vaccine manufacturing capability. Yeah. And you know, we should be able to do that. What, what does Canada probably, offer? What does Canada offer to some of these pharmaceutical companies? Like, how can we build that relationship? Well, I think, you know, the reality is that it takes money to prepare for these things. Um, you know, and it, uh, the federal government could invest, and they are investing. They're investing in Saskatoon and Vito, which is a vaccine center. They've been investing in Metacago and Quebec City, but they should have done that five years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of what they've been doing around this pandemic has been reactive uh, as opposed to proactive. So the federal government could invest, they could work with the industry, they could ensure that we've got a plan that was going to be implemented going forward. But we cannot afford to go through this again. And shame on everybody 
if uh, if we don't learn from this and apply those learnings. We didn't do it with SARS, and we didn't do it with H1N1. Well, we'll see what happens. Paul, thank you. Okay, Simi. Have a good day. That's Paul Lucas. He's retired. He's president and CEO, though, formerly of GlaxoSmithKline. That's a pretty big pharmaceutical company saying... We should learn our lessons from this, make sure this kind of situation, we don't find ourselves behind the eight ball again in a future pandemic situation, although I know we all hope that that never, ever happens again. Uh, We should mention, though, uh, when it comes to the federal government, there is some news on that. Uh, Coming up at about 15 minutes time, they're going to release the latest national COVID-19 modeling data to give us a better idea of what the trends are looking like right across the country. Uh, We know in BC where we're kind of sitting at. We know that in other provinces, like we hear, right, what's going on in Ontario and Quebec and others. But this is going to be the national picture of where we're at with COVID-19. This is Mornings with Simi. One of the surprising things of the past year has been, well, everything else that's been going on has been going on. The real estate market has actually been doing really, really well. Like we're talking booming since last fall, particularly when it comes to detached real estate. One place in particular, though, seems to be attracting a lot of new residents. According to data from Statistics Canada, Kelowna had the fourth highest population growth rate in all of Canada last year. So what is so attractive and what is going on with the market there? Well, joining us now is Kim Heisman, president of the Association of Interior Realtors. Kim, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, how busy is the market there these days? It's extremely busy. Uh, We've been reporting out since uh, June of uh, the pandemic of uh, percentages of sales being up over 50% every single month. So there's a lot of people that are uh, buying and uh, relocating into the area. Really? So are these like new residents, people moving there or is it like vacation, you know, homes, that kind of thing? It's a mix. It's a, a, a lot of people are moving within the area. There is some people buying relocation and enjoyment properties up here. And then there's a lot of people relocating into the area because their jobs, some of them uh, have their jobs that are no longer requiring them to stay where they're at. What has that done to prices, though? It has pushed them up. Yeah, we definitely got a uh, 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 upward pressure on pricing. Uh, It's continued to move up every single month. And uh, that's put our uh, our pricing uh, getting quite expensive. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. Like, do you, do you foresee some challenges as a result of this if this continues? Well, 100%, because the other part of this whole equation is the fact that our inventory is so low. We are down um, year over year. When I look at December stats, we're down 35% in our inventory. And we went into the pandemic with an inventory problem. So it's, uh, it's going to continue, I think, for the next little bit. But uh, the, the two combinations is what's uh, making this a challenging real estate market and which is what's also uh, putting the pressure right. on prices rising. And what do you think, what is it that they're looking for? And can Kelowna continue to provide that? Well, I think we are a, uh, we're a Four Seasons playground. We're a tourist destination. We have amazing trails and lakes and ski hills and orchards and vineyards. And and lifestyle, I think, has been the one thing a lot of people have really honed in on and and tried to um, tweak in their own lives. And and the way where we live just 
allows the opportunity to enjoy a, a lifestyle like that. Right. It's a bit of an irony, though, right? Like you want to get away from it all. But now Kelowna sounds like it's becoming it all. Yeah, so you've got Kelowna that's doing that, but you've got lots of little pockets of areas around Kelowna that are also seeing increases. So you've got smaller communities that are, you know, 15, 20 minutes, 40 minutes outside of Kelowna that are also thriving because of it. Is there planning going on, though, to deal with this influx of like new people, new residents coming there? Well, I think planning always has to be happening, but it's uh, housing, uh, not a housing itself is an issue no matter where we talk whether it's Kelowna Vancouver the the amount of product is what the issue is so you know there's lots of builders out there and they're they're trying to build them but it's they they can only be built so fast as well right so how how do you foresee the spring then you said inventory is still an issue yeah I think we're going to remain in an inventory uh, issue through the spring because a lot of people are are cautious about putting their house on the market because if they want to upsize or downsize, they can't find anything that they want to move to. So they're quite um, cautious about putting on their listing if there's nothing out there that they can go purchase. I don't know, Kim, this sounds an awful lot like what happened in Metro Vancouver, you know, four or five years ago. Yes. Yeah, it might uh, it might be like that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds sounds like there could be some problems. But Kim, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's Kim Heisman, president of the Association of Interior Realtors. So Kelowna sounds like a crazy, busy real estate market right now. And not only that, more and more people are moving to Kelowna. According to data from StatsCan, Kelowna had the fourth highest population growth rate in the entire country last year. But, you know, people move there because they think, oh, it's quieter. It's a smaller community. It's not going to stay that way much longer with seeing that kind of increase in growth. Now, if you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, when you're dealing with something like a cancer diagnosis, the last thing you want to worry about is traveling to your oncology appointments, worrying about having to go to a city that you maybe don't know the area very well, trying to find parking. It is stressful. That's unfortunately the reality for so many people in Metro Vancouver because a lot of the work that they have to get done and the things they have to do are not located in their communities, right? They probably have to travel to bigger areas like in Vancouver. Well, good news for the city of Surrey. Surrey Memorial Hospital is now going to be able to offer an interventional oncology service for cancer patients who otherwise would have had to come to Vancouver for the same treatment. To talk more about what this means for the community, joining us now is Dr. Bayrang Homayun, interventional radiologist at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, good to be with you, Simi. This is such great news for cancer patients in Surrey. So what does it mean for them? So I, I, I loved your description of, uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're basically right on. Um, we're now able to offer a lot of the minimally invasive therapies for cancer patients and other patients in Surrey as well. And uh, unfortunately, as you said, oftentimes these patients have to travel elsewhere. They're, re- they're referred from hospital to hospital and, uh, and, and often get these therapies in you know, larger, more academic centers. But I think with us being able to, uh, to do these procedures in Surrey means, you know, they get these uh, procedures done closer to home, closer to uh, primary physicians in the community. It just allows for better communication and better access to care. Right. So how soon will this be able to be operational for people? So we've actually, so we've started doing a lot of cases in the, you know, starting this year. So uh, these procedures are available to them now. 
and we hope to kind of expand the type of procedures we offer over the next uh, few months or so. Okay, and what is interventional oncology? What does that mean? <laughs> uh, well, interventional oncology is a branch of interventional radiology, so I'm an interventional radiologist, and uh, uh, basically what we do is we use a lot of uh, medical imaging tools such as x-rays, uh, CTs, and MRIs to be able to do minimally invasive procedures. Um, we're often called, you know, the, the specialty is often called uh, surgery without a scalpel, but it's really not surgery because at the end of the day you won't be uh, left with stitches or scars. We make these tiny uh, kind of skin uh, pinholes in the skin and find the, uh, find our way through body's own natural pathways like, in, like arteries and veins into the targets that we're trying to treat. And then we kind of treat the disease process that we're, that we're targeting from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. Okay, that sounds very cool. How, how <laughs> new is this? Um, it's been around for a while, but the, uh, but the specialty itself uh, is, uh, you know, being on the right side of technology and innovation, it's really expanded uh, over the past few years. Like, there's been significant expansion in the type of procedures that we do and the tools that we have available to us. So many of the procedures that we do are quite new, but the specialty itself has been around for a while. Okay, so you've obviously seen in the difference, uh, Dr. Homayun, th- that yeah. it can make for people when Absolutely. they don't have to worry about things like the traveling, right? Like, can you give us an idea of, of what kind of a difference that makes? Well, it's only, I guess it's, it's not only that. I think access to uh, minimally invasive care at, you know, at various peripheral sites is very important, but I think... What I would say is the main advantage of these type of therapies is that, uh, you know, there's, there's good data to support the fact that these, uh, you know, uh, decreased complication rates, adverse events in hospitals. And, you know, we do these kind of complex procedures, but the patients stay with us for a few hours to recover, and then we often send them home the same day. So I think that's, uh, that's probably the, 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 the best advantage, right. uh, in, especially in the COVID era, because you don't want to keep patients in hospital if you don't have to. Yeah, so when does this work then? Who, who would qualify for some of this interventional radiology? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, we do a we do a variety of procedures. I would say uh, the type of procedures we cover, like we have a we have a, uh, an important role in cancer care and vascular, you know, treating diseases of the vascular system and various uh, men's and uh, women's health conditions. Uh, we collaborate very closely with a lot of the specialists in our hospital and our community, and often the type of uh, you know diseases we treat require kind of a multidisciplinary assessment. So we get most of our referrals from uh, specialists in the community some from primary care physicians. So um, chances are if these procedures are the right thing for you, you know, the, the, you know, the specialists that, are, uh, that, that, that you're seeing will refer, uh, you know, patients yeah. t- to us. Um, but I think what patients can do is if, you know, when, if they're seeing their physicians, they can always ask, you know, is there a minimally invasive um, option uh, for me that's available for me? And if that's the right thing for them, then we get a referral and we can, we're happy to see the patients. Right. It sounds like, though, that there's a lot being done at Sir Memorial Hospital and even in mm-hmm. Surrey to make this kind of treatment more local. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you know, we end up doing the procedures, but there's a lot that's being done in the background for to just to make this available for us. You know, in terms of support, we're, we're lucky to have the support of the Surrey Foundation and, and community uh, partners who are kind of funding uh, and supporting us. Uh, but all of this is really... You know, a lot of these procedures are logistically challenging, so all of this is really possible because of the, you know, the team that we have. We have a team of uh, highly trained technologists, nurses, uh, who kind of work hand in hand with us, and we can't do these procedures without the whole right. team approach. It's also, you know, administrators uh, in the background that are really working hard to make sure that we have the tools necessary and the support system in place to be able to do these. Right? Can you envision a time though when a patient who lives outside of Vancouver would not ever have to come into Vancouver for treatment? 
Absolutely, and that's that's the goal. And and I and I'm and I'm hopeful. You know, speaking with all the healthcare uh, providers and administrators, there's an increasing recognition that you know this needs to go beyond Surrey. We need to be able to provide these services at peripheral uh, sites. Uh, you know, uh, in the Lower Mainland and beyond. And I'm and I'm hopeful. Uh, seeing what I'm seeing and the progress that everyone's making, that this this uh, you know will will continue to improve, and we will have these services outside of um, you know Surrey and other peripheral hospitals as well. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, thank you so much for your time. Of course, thank you. Appreciate that, Dr. Berang Homayun, who's an interventional radiologist at Surrey Memorial Hospital. It is really good news for cancer patients that if you need to have this particular type of uh, oncology service, that you don't have to now come into Vancouver for that, that you can be treated at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Like that is, uh, you may think it's a small thing. It is not for somebody who has a cancer diagnosis. Let me tell you, that's a big deal to be able to be treated in your community. We need more of that. This is Mornings with Simi. So we heard this week that the Canada-U.S. border is going to remain closed through February 21st, likely beyond that as well. At this point, we have no idea when that is going to reopen to people going back and forth and, you know, being tourists, essentially, in another country. But that hasn't stopped people from other provinces still traveling and being those tourists, essentially. We heard yesterday from Premier John Horgan talking about Canadian travel restrictions because there are concerns about this going on. So joining us now to talk more about that is Gary Saltz, the Mayor of Revelstoke. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for calling. Now, last time we talked to you, Mayor Saltz, I I remember that, you know, there was a lot of frustration because of an outbreak in your community. How's that been going? Uh, Well, the numbers have been up and down, kind of a roller coaster ride. Uh, cumulative uh, numbers are up over 100, and uh, you know we're not seeing anyone in hospital at this point. The virus is not in any of our extended care facilities, so for that, we're happy. Yeah, um, but yeah. Yep, and then uh, you know, as we see, we're still seeing tourists here in the community. Okay. Now, Revelstoke, of course, is an area that does get a lot of tourists. You and I had talked about that before. What did you think of Premier Horgan's con- um, com- comments yesterday about trying to restrict interprovincial travel? Well, I'm supportive of that. Uh, definitely most of our community is supportive of that. You know, if we can get a hold of this uh, virus by limiting travel, um, then I think I think it's a benefit. And uh, so, you know, I, I'm not sure how it's going to play out or uh, if he's able to do it. And if he is, how is it going to be rolled out? Does it surprise you, though, when you say like a lot of your community is behind that idea? This is a community that does rely on a lot of people probably coming in from Alberta and other places. Yeah, we're a tourist community, a tourist destination. And we've said before, and, and even our, our chamber has said, um, when times are better, we encourage you to come. Right now, we want to get a hold of uh, making sure the virus is stemmed and that it's not going to go through our community. If we don't have our health, uh, then, of course, we don't need our uh, our financial uh, stuff. So, you know, we need to get the health first. And once we have health in, in order, then, uh, then people can travel. What kind of traveling have you seen? Like, what have you, you're right on the front lines of people tra- traveling. So what's out there? Yeah. Yeah, well, we're we're seeing vehicles from all three prairie provinces, uh, some from Ontario, some from Quebec. They're coming, uh, the, the prairie provinces are definitely coming with snowmobiles on the back of their pickup trucks or with huge trailers behind loaded with uh, snowmobiles. 
And then we're seeing people from all over those uh, provinces and all over Canada on our ski hill as well. Now, you have to take in mind that some of those people who come from the eastern provinces have come here to work. So they've been here for this season. They've done their quarantine. They're safe. They're they're doing what they can. But we're still seeing people travel from all over. And uh, as things get tighter in the east, people seem to believe they can get on a plane and uh, and show up here in the West and then just uh, do their thing. Or they feel that they can uh, just travel, get in their car and go. They're safe. They're doing doing their physical distance by being in the car. But when they get here, they're doing the social gathering. And it's during that social gathering that we're seeing the virus. That must put the people in your community in a very difficult situation, right? Because there must be some resentment about that. There's definitely some resentment. Um, You know, people are concerned. uh, They're not happy. Uh, and the fact that, you know, for the most part, a lot of people have done their, their due diligence over the Christmas. They've, uh, you know, gone home, stayed in their family bubble, and then people are coming. Now we're hearing from uh, Dr. Henry that, you know, it's not always the travelers that are bringing the virus. It is, you know, even our locals who are social gathering. So the younger generation are not paying heed to the rules in their social gathering and hence the, uh, the virus spreads. Has there been any consideration of perhaps like closing down the ski hill or things like that to kind of prevent people from coming in? Well, that's kind of up to the ski hill to decide. And they have a, a, a plan both with WorkSafe and with the interior health to keep people safe. And, uh, you know, we're, we don't know of any definite uh, spread from people being at the ski hill. It's just concern amongst the community that that could happen. And the spread that we're seeing uh, when we had our cluster back in November was out of the, you know, 30 people or 29 people that uh, had this outbreak, uh, only seven of them were from out of the area. Three were out of province and uh, four were from, I believe, the lower mainland. Right. you, you hear all kinds of stories. So you talk about the quarantine and people being careful. Like, do you know that everybody is doing that? If they're coming there, are are the workers and the people who work on the ski hills being careful? Well, I think for the most part they are. There's definitely some that are not and not understanding what careful means. And, you know, it's a frustration for those of us who are doing our thing. Um so you just need to trust at some point. But when trust doesn't work, that's when we start to see the uh, regulations get tightened up. Right. So what would you like to hear from the Premier then, Marisol? Would you like him to take a tougher stance on this? I would like to see a tougher stance. The community would like to see that. That's what I'm hearing from people here. Um, even if it's for a short period of time, even if it was for, for you know four weeks or something, saying, hey, we're going to... We're going to tighten it up. We're going to see how that goes and uh, and go from there. My biggest concern is just because we have restrictions on, that doesn't mean that we can let our guard down, that we can't, uh, you know, we can just go ahead and do our business without our our, uh, concerns for our health. We need to be diligent as well. Every one of us in the community needs to be able to say, hey, I'm doing the best that I can do. I wear my mask. I keep myself clean. I'm not doing the social gathering. I'm not the one spreading it. Right. And, uh, you know, that's what we need. I heard yesterday the mayor of Calgary saying that, oh, hadn't heard that some communities in BC don't want to see people traveling there. And I thought, okay, well, clearly the message isn't getting through. That is it. That's it. And that's uh, kind of what I've been stating is that no matter what we're saying out here, it doesn't mean that the message is getting to the people out there. And so sometimes when people get out here, they're surprised when they when they hear the community saying, why are you here? Uh, You're not supposed to be. And yet there's others who flaunt it.
and uh, say, well, I'm here because it's for my mental health and I'm going to do what I need to do for me. Mm, Tough for the community to hear that. All right, Mayor Saltz, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Amy. Appreciate it. That's Gary Saltz, the mayor of Revelstoke. So very much a tourism, you know, community. They see a lot of people coming in, even right now from all the Western provinces, he said, from Ontario, from Quebec. They got the snowmobiles there. They're going to go and they're going to have fun. They're going to go skiing. And so whatever we're saying here in BC, as Mayor Saltz pointed out, clearly not getting through to the other provinces. You may have seen the story on Global News, too, with the mayor of Calgary, uh, Mayor Nenshi, essentially being asked about how BC would consider like not having interprovincial travel. And he was like, oh, that was news to him. Uh, he wasn't aware. He said that they're getting mixed messages from some communities. And I thought, no, I don't think so. Most BC communities have said, we will welcome you back when this is over, but they would prefer people not to travel from another province to their community. So there is a disconnect, right? We're saying one thing here in this province, message is not getting through in other provinces. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Canadian snowbirds are making the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine a little more complicated. As we know, hundreds of thousands of snowbirds go south of the border every year for the winter. And we've also learned that Some of them are actually still going in spite of the pandemic. Well, a couple of professors at Simon Fraser University are looking ahead to the potential issues that might arise because of this. Joining us now is Valerie Crooks, SFU professor and Canada Research Chair in Health Service Geographies. Valerie, thank you for being with us. Uh, You're welcome. Good morning. What kind of issues might this present? Um, Yeah, that's a really great question. So as you said in the lead up to the segment, Every year, um, you know, thousands of older Canadians travel abroad to spend the winter months in warmer climates. And, you know, on an ongoing basis, there are some challenges around that mobility for healthcare and health services. And in this pandemic context, there's new ones that are being introduced, one of which is the potential for people to actually access COVID-19 vaccine while they're abroad. Um, and there's some specific challenges that raises. So one of which is that, as we know, the, the vaccine is actually um, a two-part vaccine. And there's always the potential that someone actually will not be able to access the second part while they're abroad. There's a number of reasons for that. So it's not that I'm at the, uh, from the outset saying that this is a hugely problematic issue. But we've seen, for example, today announcements saying there's been delays in vaccine shipments coming to Canada. We've also seen recent discussion coming out of Quebec, for example, about um, consideration of delaying the second stage of the vaccine. There's also just the reality that a snowbird may return home because of an emergency, a health situation or something else before they were planning to get the second vaccine. And so this is something that we need to start planning for. The potential for people to access the first stage while abroad and then returning and needing the second stage. There are other kinds of of concerns around this issue as well. Not that many people are expected to have negative outcomes or complications as a result of the vaccine, but if you're abroad when that happens, there needs to be very careful consideration as to whether or not one's travel health insurance would cover that if somebody needed to be hospitalized. The likelihood is no, but that is something that they would need to consider really carefully. So we could always have people actually returning because they need to have emergency care following a complication of a vaccine. Mm. Um, Another sort of major issue that we can anticipate is that Um, You know, across Canada as a whole, we need to create a really dynamic vaccine registry. We need to know who is vaccinated, 
with uh, which vaccine at which point in time. And so if people are accessing the vaccine abroad, not just Canadian snowbirds, but other people who are abroad and returning to Canada, we need to think really carefully about how we're going to be able to incorporate that information. Um, Somebody that's in health services research like myself knows that actually computer um, databases don't really talk well between one another. So while we might think it's a really easy thing to do to bring back information from abroad that we want to have entered into our medical record, it doesn't always happen as smoothly as we would think. I also wondered too, is there a concern about the fact that we're we're developing our vaccine rollout plans, who is going to get it and when, and we don't know if they're, some of these snowbirds are here or if they're going to get it somewhere else, and like, what does that mean for the people who might have been behind them in the line? That's very true. So, you know, as you were just suggesting, this raises a whole bunch of sort of larger um, concerns or issues for us to think about around fairness, around who should be entitled to receive access to the vaccine at which time. Um, So, for example, you know, the United States is an incredibly popular destination for Canadian snowbirds. In the United States, um, you know, states and different different jurisdictions are creating their own rollout plans. And they have to think really carefully around priorities and whether or not a Canadian snowbird would be a priority. And we've actually seen lots of discussion happening in Florida, um, you know, which is a state that typically hosts tens of thousands of Canadian snowbirds annually, um, where, you know, there's definitely an economic impact of that mobility not happening um, in the way that it normally would both last year and this year, where there are officials who are saying, well, wait a minute, actually, Canadian snowbirds might actually be a priority because we want these people to come and we want them to be healthy. Um, And that dialogue and and sort of considering um, Canadian snowbirds as a priority in the American context um, or in the Floridian, uh, I was going to say Floridian context, um, it may not be sort of uh, matching up with where that person would sit within the the priorities here domestically. Right, because it sounds like in Florida today they're going to start a statewide appointment system, all online, so you can make an appointment. But essentially, anybody who's sixty five or older, that's it. That's right, exactly. And you know, in Florida again, this is a state that is very. Um, economically or financially tied to the movement of snowbirds. The other thing as well is that not all snowbirds in Florida are coming from Canada. There are tens of thousands of snowbirds who travel from northern states within the United States down into Florida. So, you know, there may not be a lot of consideration around teasing apart the difference or the significance of a snowbird, for example, from Canada versus a snowbird Mm -hmm. from Michigan. Having that granularity in the decision-making process at this point in time may not be meaningful enough in Florida. But then, again, we need to consider what the implications are here in Canada. And I just want to make it clear because, you know, we published an op-ed piece about this yesterday, and I always love reading the comments on op-ed pieces. Um, and there were many people who were concerned that we were giving an unfair shake to snowbirds in our, our concerns that we were raising about this. You know, snowbirds are near and dear to my heart. Not only are my parents snowbirds, but I've been researching snowbirds spending time in snowbird communities for the past many years. Mm -hmm. And the whole reason why we actually gave voice to this issue is that we want to make sure that health authorities and health systems here within Canada are planning for the return. That's where we're trying to give voice and say we have to actually start now planning for the fact that there's probably going to be a small number of Canadian snowbirds returning who have actually only had the first stage of the vaccine. And second to that, that we need to anticipate that others are going to be returning and having access to it fully abroad. Okay. And we need to prompt them to tell us. Okay. Well, that's all good stuff that we've got to remember for sure. Valerie, thank you. 
You're welcome. Thank you very much. Valerie Cooks, SFU professor, Canada Research Chair in Health Service Geography, is letting us know that with all the snowbirds potentially getting vaccines in the States, we need to essentially accommodate that in our system. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.